everyone, and welcome to the November 2021 episode of Amplify. I am your host, Sam Ashu, and today we are interviewing Dr. Patrick Marr. He is the author of this month's issue of Emergency Medicine Practice on the Emergency Department Treatment of Rib Fractures. And before we dive into that interview, I want to tell you about an exciting offer from EB Medicine. This month, we are celebrating the American College of Emergency Physicians Annual Scientific Assembly. And to go along with it, if you were not attending the conference, you can still save 20% on everything in the EB Medicine store. You can take advantage of that offer by going to ebmedicine.net and using the ASEP21 coupon code. And while you're there, take a look around. You've got last month's emergency medicine practice article on cervical spine injury management in the emergency department and the pediatric issue on pediatric transplant patients in the emergency department and so much more. And now without any more delay, let's get to that interview with Dr. Marr and talk rib fractures. So I'm Patrick Marr. I'm a, a assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai, working in the emergency department in the ICU. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time to talk to us about the issue that you authored for November 2021 on rib fractures. But before we start, why rib fractures? What exactly makes this a important topic for us as emergency clinicians? Yeah, I mean, a few things. Number one, it's a common topic. It's something that's encountered in a lot of uh, centers, whether you're a trauma center or not. It is something which affects our patients a lot. It causes substantial pain to them. It carries a substantial risk of mortality. And it's also a topic in which there's been, over the past several years, a lot of work done, particularly with regards to the treatment of this on the inpatient side that I wanted emergency physicians to be aware of. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all of that. Before we do, though, let's cover a little bit of interesting anatomy. I found it interesting that up to 8% of the general population is going to have extra ribs that uh, are not in the normal 1 through 12 distribution. Is that right? That was the highest number that I was able to find in the literature, probably the number that would be on the upper end if you were to do large population studies here. This includes a number of anatomic rib abnormalities, you know, including cervical ribs, including reduced number of ribs, in addition to the other abnormalities can occur in the thorax. And then we were traditionally taught in residency that if you had a fracture of one of the upper ribs, one, two, or three, that this was suggestive of a lot of energy or perhaps a higher degree of trauma. Is that still true? That certainly is still taught. Whether that really remains true, it has not been well seen in the literature. I would regard these fractures to the upper thoracic ribs to be a marker of a risk for a serious injury to the cardiac and to the vascular structures. But otherwise, what is found in the literature is that although these have a relatively good sensitivity for damage to a neurovascular structure, the positive predictive value is very low. So uh, the studies that have evaluated this find it's only around uh, 10 or 12% of patients with these fractures to the upper ribs, even in the cases of uh, major chest trauma, would have damage to the uh, vascular structure. And that would be the patient group that would benefit from a CTA, but otherwise that the yield is relatively low. Interesting. In your article, you also mentioned that people who uh, are relatively young can also suffer 
stress fractures of the first and second ribs, even though they haven't been involved in high impact trauma. Is that something that's a rare finding or something that is more common than we believe? Yeah, so fractures of those upper ribs in a younger population. So the same thing which causes them to be associated with more significant injuries in a general population, the fact that they've got a lot of muscular attachments and the fact that they're protected by a large soft tissue window means that they're at risk for stress fractures in a highly active younger population, rowers being the group that's uh, commonly described within the literature here. And, you know, as to how common they are, I don't think that that's really well established. There probably are some of these injuries which go unnoticed because they don't undergo chest x-rays, but they certainly do happen and thankfully are not associated with any of the more severe injuries that we see when these same ribs get injured in an older population or in a population after a major episode of chest trauma. Gotcha. So when we're talking about a patient who has rib fractures or potential rib fractures and we're in the pre-hospital setting, what kinds of things are we asking our pre-hospital personnel to keep in mind? With regards to the pre-hospital care of patients with rib fractures, I think most of their injury and most of their treatment depended upon the other kinds of factors involved in the trauma. So have they got injuries to the airway? Did they need protection of breathing? Do they have substantial circulatory problems? All the standard ABCs that our paramedics are used to in this kind of population. The only thing which is particularly unique about a rib fracture group would be the risks of damage to the lung, risks of pneumothorax, and whether that paramedic would need to treat uh, pneumothorax in the field with something like a flutter valve. And then secondly, the fact that a lot of these patients with rib fractures are already going to be experiencing a large amount of pain and that pre-hospital treatment for a substantial amount of rib pain would be necessary in a lot of cases. So primarily focused on associated life-threatening injuries and then treating the, the pain while they're transporting to the hospital. That's right. And then when it comes to the emergency department evaluation, progressing through our typical history and physical examination, when we're obtaining a history from patients who might have rib fractures, is there anything specific other than the general history that we're eliciting? For a patient after trauma, the, the general history of the traumatic event is going to be the most telling. You know, how much trauma was undergone? Where was the major site of pain after that happened? Was there, you know, for a car accident, use of restraints? So their airbags were deployed, recent drug or alcohol use, a lot of historical factors like anticoagulants, antiplatelet agents. For a patient after a relatively minor trauma or a patient who's had a rib pain, which they're concerned about being a rib fracture, which has gone on for a longer period of time, more historical factors will come into play, instances of history as of cancer, which might lead to a metastatic uh, lesion, and the pathologic rib fracture would be the case there, uh, substantial amounts of activity, which predisposes to a stress fracture. But for most of our patients after a minor trauma incident, the traumatic history is going to be the most important. Great. And then when it comes to the physical examination, anything specific there? I, I would say that it's quite common for these patients to be able to pinpoint an area of most concern where they think that the rib's actually broken. Uh, uncommon that somebody's going to feel like they've got more of generalized pain unless they've got several ribs fractured in a row. There are more rare findings that can be experienced. Hammond's crunch is the classically described one after a pneumobediastinum. Uh, subcutaneous emphysema, which can be palpable with crepitus, but most patients will not present with those findings, even in the presence of a pneumothorax. Good. 
Yeah, that's been my clinical experience as well as the patient saying, I hurt right here. Please don't touch that area. But every time I breathe or move, I, I have a severe pain shooting in my side right over this rib. That's right. Yeah, it, it can be a useful physical exam finding is to pinpoint that area of most pain. Actually, when we talk about diagnostic studies, one of my more interesting findings reviewing some of this literature was the studies that compared with ultrasound usage having the patient put the ultrasound probe over that point of maximal intense pain improved the sensitivity of ultrasound for rib fractures. Interesting. Sort of, here's the probe, please place it where you hurt and we will take a look. That's a genius idea. Okay, so let's move on to imaging then. We've got a lot of information in the issue about decision instruments. And when we talk about imaging, especially in the trauma patients, CT is very common. So as we go on with the debate of when to image and what modality to use, your issue specifically mentions something called the Nexus Chest Decision Instrument in Blunt Trauma. Tell me about that. The Nexus Chest rules and the Chest CT rules come from the same kind of large studies where we have gotten the rules for cervical spine imaging derived. These are less commonly used rules, certainly, but they are applied in the same way in which you, basically you have a set of checklist items and any of them make the rule positive. And if the rule is positive, then some kind of a chest imaging study is recommended. But in the case that all of these criteria are negative, then you have a high sensitivity to say that no imaging is required in these patients. Following the Nexus chest rule, there's a subsequent rule which can be followed, which is the chest CT rule to further uh, clarify a group of patients in whom not only is chest imaging going to be beneficial, but in whom the chance of finding a significantly uh, important finding on a chest CT would be there. So these are designed to be applied stepwise, although they are less commonly used than a lot of our cervical spine imaging rules. They've been present in literature and they do fall into some of the recommendations of the um, imaging societies here and of the trauma societies and something that I think is a compliment maybe to even like the American College of Radiology imaging appropriateness rules when you talk about blunt chest trauma. So it's designed really to be used in the same manner as the Nexus cervical spine decision instrument, which is if you meet these criteria, you don't need to image this patient. Correct. That in the absence of all of these criteria with a completely negative rule that you don't need to get imaging and that if any of these would become positive, then imaging may be appropriate. Good. And then you said there's a, a follow-up instrument that might guide whether or not that imaging needs to be plain film or CT. That's right. So the Nexus chest CT decision instrument, it was devised by Rob Rodriguez and something which follows upon the Nexus chest rule and is designed for application within a population with more major chest injuries and in whom you're going to start deciding whether a CT of the chest would be important to uh, determine whether more significant injury is present. This is an interesting area of medicine that seems to swing back and forth like a pendulum, I think. When I was training, it was very much a, you are in a trauma and you're going to get CT scans of your abdomen and pelvis and your head and your neck, but the chest imaging was primarily plain film radiography. And then working at a trauma center, we seem to have adopted CT imaging as a standard and the, the pan scan, as they call it, where your entire body is imaged. 
And now we have decision instruments that are talking about maybe a more radiation sparing approach. So where are we today, you think, in that pendulum swing for when to obtain a CT? Uh, should we be doing it on all of our trauma patients or anyone who has chest wall pain? Or is there still room there for a reasoned approach and, and some sparing of radiation? Yeah, there's always room for a reasoned approach to the sparing of radiation. and. The probably important thing to remember with all of these decision rules and with all of these pendulum swings back and forth is you're going to need to clarify which population that you mean when you talk about the imaging for them. So with regards to the use of pan scan, which is certainly seen more frequently in a trauma center and definitely seen more frequently in those patients after a serious traumatic injury, regardless to whatever part of the thorax that we're talking about or to the abdomen, it's much more common to get more imaging performed and more imaging, which is going to have a lot more findings for those patients with a relatively minor trauma after a fall, after a, you know, more simple injury to the chest wall, uh, chest CT is not going to be necessary because chest CT is much less likely to find a positive findings. And so the damage that we cause to the patient by the radiation is going to overwhelm any kind of a real benefit that we'd accumulate. I, I don't think that it's possible to say without taking into account the kind of an injury a patient had, whether a chest CT is going to be the recommended study or not. But I can say that in studies where they've compared, for instance, pan scan versus selective scanning approaches in a patient after a major traumatic injury, findings are that you can um, selectively choose the studies which will still find all the important outcomes and that you don't need to perform pan scans necessarily in all patients. However, it is uh, a majority of patients who will undergo pan scans simply because for a patient after a substantial traumatic event, usually there's multiple reasons of interest and uh, those reasons of interest will sometimes just add up to the pan scan, even without randomizing them into the pan scan groups. Yeah, that has been what I've seen, especially working at our trauma center. It is also seemingly very trauma surgeon dependent as well. Some are comfortable with plain film imaging of the chest if there isn't any obvious injury and the mechanism is appropriate. But there is certainly room for that conversation. So if you're listening and you do work at a trauma center, it's good to have that conversation before you are standing in front of the patient for the first time and maybe to establish some local rules. What about patients with abdominal trauma? So in that overlap area between the lower ribs and the upper abdomen, uh, especially when you're looking at the spleen and the liver, trying to decide when it's appropriate to order a CT versus just some plain films gets to be a little difficult. Yeah, I, I think that's it's often going to be the case that a CT of the chest in that kind of group that you're talking about where you've got a, a lot of abdominal injury and even much more so if you've got an injury concerned to the, to the neck as well, that a chest CT is going to be an important part of the workup and that it should be ordered in those cases. The Abdominal CT scans ordered in most centers will start to get a lot of information about the lower part of the rib cage because they have a have an upper point of termination of the imaging study, which is you know pretty far into the chest itself. When you combine that fact with you know chest CTs that we get going down, really including a couple of the thoracic vertebrae already, the parts of the body that we're missing by not getting a chest CT is relatively small, and so the amount of radiation that we're saving by not exposing patients to chest CTs is is relatively minimal and kind of of a questionable clinical utility. There shouldn't be 
an abandonment of the concern for the radiation exposure to patients, uh, any radiation exposure, for instance, to a female patient or a younger patient, you know, to the breast tissue is going to be something which on a population basis is going to cause problems later. And those are going to be individual patients that we harm. But I think that for a substantially injured patient population group, not just in a trauma center, but in a lot of our patients, there's going to be a need for a chest CT to occur. I, I would even sub clarify my comment to add that there's going to be age groups in whom the benefits swing even further towards getting a chest CT. And what I'm thinking of here is the elderly population group. These are groups that have been shown in now many studies to have important findings on a chest CT, much more so than we see in a younger uh, population of major blunt trauma patients. The clarifying the number of exact rib fractures and the rib fracture pattern within an elderly population group can be critically important to determine their admission needs, to determine whether they need to go to an ICU, and even to determine now, based upon some of the more recent studies, whether they need to get operative fixation of the rib fractures in order to prevent their further morbidity and mortality risks as they're admitted. Good. So then in that population, the CT may actually give us more information when it comes to disposition and treatment than in a younger person, say, with maybe a more minor mechanism. That's right. With minor mechanisms, the Merrick College Radiology and a couple of studies that they've used to come into their guidelines, very minorly injured patients, even though we may find additional chest injuries, additional rib fractures even on a chest CT in comparison to a plain films, the clinical importance of these additional findings has been brought into question. Since with a relatively minor injured patient, without a presence of a pneumothorax, without substantial rib displacement on a chest X-ray, they are unlikely to receive different treatments based upon the findings of a chest X-ray versus those on a CAT scan. So yes, certainly in those patients with a relatively minor injury, the CT scan may now be less beneficial. Good. Now we touched on the first and second rib fractures and their association or maybe lack of with great vessel injury. When we're going to image someone's chest, the American College of Radiology appropriateness criteria mentions CT imaging of the chest without contrast when you're looking for chest wall trauma in the appropriate setting. But that isn't really going to tell us necessarily all that much about their vasculature without contrast. They did list contrast as a possible option, but the first line was there is CT without, and I'm just wondering. Is there a role for deciding when to use contrast based on where the patient might be injured or have experienced pain? Or is it more or less, if you're in a polytrauma and you're going to get scanned with your abdomen and pelvis, you're going to use the same contrast bolus and this is irrelevant issue? It's a good question that is determined according to the patient's injury pattern. So there is going to be reduced a chance to determine vascular injury patterns when you radiograph a patient or when you perform a CT of the patient without IV contrast. The ability of a CTA to determine whether any kind of a cerebrovascular trauma has occurred or any kind of a, a vascular injury in general has occurred is, is, is very good, but it's just not going to be necessary in all cases. It's going to be something that should be ordered according to the presence of hard and soft vascular signs and according to the patient's pretest probability of having a vascular injury based upon the kind of trauma that they received. 
The reason why in the article that we're talking about that CT scan without contrast is the first line is more specifically because I've chosen to include the minor blunt chest trauma guidelines for appropriateness published by the American College of Radiology. The ACR does publish a separate set of guidelines for patients with more significant chest trauma, as well as a separate set of guidelines for patients in whom a concern for cardiovascular trauma has occurred. And for those patient groups, CT scan with contrast, with IV contrast, um, is recommended at a much higher level. So that's primarily then, again, guided by the clinical scenario and the suspicion for something underlying and not something that is a hard set or fast rule without consideration for what actually happened to the patient. That's right. And then with regards to the second part of that question is, are we talking about one contrast load or two contrast loads? Without going deeply into the risks of contrast-induced nephropathy, given that we're talking about a pretty separate topic here, I'll say that it would depend upon the ability of your you know, CT technicians to, to minimize the contrast exposure for our patients. Certainly, just like with any medication or with any kind of radiation experience, we want to minimize unnecessary drugs that are given, contrast being one of those. It, because the need will be to image both the uh, venous as well as the arterial system, it may not be possible to perform both using one contrast load, and this may necessitate dual contrast loads for a patient if they're undergoing particularly imaging of multiple body parts. That's very helpful. So again, if you're listening and you've never had this conversation with your radiologist, it's a good conversation to have regarding how much contrast a patient receives, especially in the trauma setting, although there is still ongoing debate about whether or not contrast-induced nephropathy is even a real entity, but that's far beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. So have that conversation with your radiologist. There are guidelines from the American College of Radiology that you might find interesting. But back to our patient, we talked about plain film imaging and CT imaging, and you also mentioned whether or not ultrasound could be beneficial in patients. Tell me more about what the scenario might be where I could use bedside ultrasound. Yeah, I can't overstate the importance of ultrasound to the modern trauma workup. I feel like without ultrasound, we would be uh, such a, a limited set of tools left at our disposal. But for chest trauma, the most important use of the ultrasound modality for imaging is going to be for the detection of pneumothorax. You know, unfortunately, ultrasound, although it's fantastic at so many things, is not able to detect rib fractures with quite enough sensitivity or specificity to really rule in or rule out presence of a fracture for a lot of patients. But when you're talking about significant injuries as a result of rib fractures, it's very good at determining whether a pneumothorax is present. And it is actually more sensitive for that than a plain film chest X-ray is. Although, of course, a CAT scan is going to be similarly sensitive and highly sensitive for the presence of even a small pneumothorax. The other thing that ultrasound is able to show you is whether there's any kind of free fluid within the thorax. And for obviously free fluid within the thorax following a traumatic incident is going to be highly suggestive of a hemothorax, uh, something which may need treatment with a chest tube in the appropriate setting. So ultrasound, still the winner for looking for associated injuries, but not necessarily great at actually imaging the bone itself for the rib fracture. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's uh, cheap and easy and quick. Yeah. And repeatable quite easily. Okay. What about when we get to treatment medications? What are options when it comes to trying to control the pain of someone who's got multiple rib fractures? 
Right. So thankfully, this is a very well-studied treatment question is how should we best control pain in a patient with a rib fracture, both in the patient group in whom there is not a lot of other concomitant injuries and also in the patient group when you're talking about, you know, fairly seriously injured trauma patient. Unfortunately, there is no golden consensus on the right mixture of medications, which is going to be useful for all people. So uh, the benefits of using some kind of a pain control regimen is that you're going to allow the patient to have not only a better quality of life and reduce morbidity, but also to take bigger breaths, perform better coughing and clearer pulmonary toilet, which is going to reduce the risks of pneumonia and reduce the risks of downstream morbidity and mortality. When any patient with rib fractures is being discussed, the first the core you know, keystone of their treatment plan for pain regimen is going to be some kind of an NSAID or some kind of a Tylenol-based group of treatments. I think that for patients who are able to be discharged to home, this is also going to form the core of their treatment plan. And it's important when we're talking about the NSAIDs and when we're talking about Tylenol to remember that there is so many cases in which they are demonstrated in an emergency department patient group to be at least as equivalent to combination regimens that do include opioids. Not to suggest that opioids have no role in these cases. They certainly do have quite a big role. But for many patients, I think that the NSAIDs are going to be powerful enough in isolation to be able to provide a patient with an adequate level of pain control that they would be able to be discharged home. Good. Now, you also mentioned in the issue ketamine, gabapentin, and methocarbamol. Tell me, is there really any good evidence that any of these make any difference? I think that the evidence basis for these particular agents is a little bit lower. So gabapentin has been studied and has shown a not really robust signal that it is beneficial and part of a multimodal pain strategy. The uh, use of methocarbamol does have an observational study which suggested some benefits and reduced opioid requirements there, but similarly something which I think that we would want to see better and more robust data on for making it something that would be uh, far more important in the pain strategy. Ketamine, likewise, has been used in multiple kind of inpatient multimodal pain regimens in both uh, infusion as well as push doses. I would not recommend this for patients who are having consideration that they could go home, but I do think that because of its narcotic sparing properties, that ketamine still has a role, even though the data for it are much more modest compared to some of these other strategies for its ability to cut down on the opioid requirements or for its ability to improve pain scores. And then... What about the topical lidocaine patches? Do those really make much of a difference? I, I think that there's going to be some patient variability here, but at least the studies that have been performed show that they may be effective. They're obviously somewhat difficult to blind patients upon the presence of a topical lidocaine. So I would say that's a potential risk for some bias in some of these studies, but topical lidocaine patches, um, I, I think that we've all anecdotally had a lot of patients that have experienced benefit from them and some other patients that say that they don't really help at all, more commonly used in back pain, but also these may help in rib fractures. For inpatients, there's the chance of using an IV lidocaine infusion, which actually does have some demonstrated studies that show reductions in opioid requirements. Obviously, those are not options for our patients who are going to be discharged home. And then for those patients who get admitted to the hospital, there are regional blocks that can be used to alleviate some of that pain. Have those been shown to be of much benefit? They are a benefit. So regional and neuroaxial anesthesia blocks that are used in rib fractures come in multiple flavors. So there's epidural blocks which are typically applied by a part of our anesthesia departments. These are not more commonly applied by the emergency department itself. 
And in meta-analyses, at least, these show reductions in pain scores I mean, within the first couple of days of a rib fracture. And so they are recommended now in guidelines as part of a multimodal pain regimen, which would include neuroaxial anesthesia. They aren't applicable for all patient groups, and they do have substantial risks and drawbacks. So number one, they have uh, reductions in the amount of anticoagulants that you can use for these patients, particularly preventing them from being therapeutically anticoagulated and even concerns with using low molecular weight heparins in some of these patient groups. And then secondly, we look for these to have some side effects, in particular hypotension, which can occur when we're using neuroaxial anesthesia. So not necessarily something which would be applied to all patients with rib fractures, but something which can be helpful in many cases. There are other paravertebral blocks and even intercostal blocks which can be applied. And some of these would be reasonable to perform within the emergency department and even by an emergency provider, but uh, something which has less of a robust body of literature to support their efficacy. Okay, what about non-medication treatments? So let's start with binders. We were always taught decades ago that binders were of no benefit because they just increased the li- because they increased the chances of developing pneumonia from lack of chest wall movement, but is there really a role for them or has there been any new evidence in that arena? Yeah, certainly when I came through training, that was still the discussion is that you can't do a chest binder, you can't do rib belts, you're gonna be hurting your patient because you'll be restricting their chest wall movement. And I not say that's necessarily been disproven, but many people have questioned the results of these somewhat smaller and more, you know, case reports and observational data, which resulted in that kind of a dogma being discussed. There's always been rib um, belts and different kind of chest binders for sale because they don't require a prescription. And so there's multiple brands of them. They're available in many kind of corner drugstore places and probably used by an unknown number of patients for their chest wall pain after they either have a diagnosed rib fracture or just the suspicion of one. There has been at least a couple of recent studies where they've evaluated both kinesio taping, so things that you've seen at the Olympics, kind of a tape applied to the chest wall in order to provide some support to the muscle bellies there and reduce pain. There's also been a, a kind of a new generation of chest orthotics, which have been evaluated now and some within an RCT, but The once again, problem with evaluating these is that you're talking relatively small studies and although they are randomized controlled trials, these are not blinded trials and something in which I think it's difficult to dissect out the bias from the patients that are evaluated and what is relatively speaking a modest benefit in reductions of pain medication use. Yeah, it's interesting. I found the kinesio taping to be actually particularly fascinating. There's a great figure in the issue of someone with their ribs taped using kinesio taping and it's not just a simple strip of tape that you might see say on the outside of a thigh or over a knee joint or something of that sort it's really a crisscross web pattern that's pretty significant and certainly one the patient couldn't put on by themselves so something to consider if you're going to use something like that how long is it going to be in place and is it replaceable and is there a family member who can put it on but it's a fascinating treatment modality Hopefully there'll be some more evidence for it uh, soon. Yeah, I would say that some of these orthotics and some of these taping devices have some benefits, even if they are placebo, by the fact that they are relatively cheap and that they don't require the use of any kind of a narcotic medication. So there are possible benefits for these devices, but still, just as you said, something that I really look forward to more data coming out and hopefully more robust studies of their evaluation. Nothing that's been seen for harm in these more recent devices, but the benefits of which still have to be more figured out.
Good. And then the final category when we're talking about treatment in the emergency department uh, or support of the patient in the emergency department would be respiratory support. So now we're talking about things like intubation or positive pressure ventilation or high flow oxygen. Is there evidence for or against the use of any of these in someone who's got multiple rib fractures? And is it helpful to use some of the non-invasive modalities or what are our options in this arena? Yeah, so now with patient group in whom we're talking about more serious blood chest injury, including not only rib fractures, but probably what's leading towards some damage to the pulmonary parenchyma itself. The discussion for a long time has been whether these patients are good candidates for any kind of like a non-invasive oxygen support or high flow nasal cannula or even just a non-breather mask or whether it's the best option for these patients to go directly towards an invasive ventilatory strategy. The data now seems to be evolving, as many other points of data have been in hypoxic respiratory failure, to suggest that there can be a role for non-invasive ventilation. And uh, in rib fractures, it's focused upon uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or BiPAP, as many people would refer to this in their EDs, suggesting that there can be a benefit within a very well-chosen patient population group. So the patient population that's going to benefit from non-invasive is going to be those who are awake, those who don't have a lot of concomitant other injuries, those patients who don't have any kind of a damage to their oropharynx or to their neck, and so you can actually fit the mask on them very well, and also somebody who's got preferably relatively modest hypoxic detriments, because in those patients who have serious ARDS developing, they probably would just benefit from going towards more of a rapid invasive strategy. Um, the evidence would suggest that the application of positive pressure to these patients, which is higher positive pressure than you generate with just a regular high flow, it's something that's not quite as powerful as the ventilator, but more of a moderate strategy, that you can pneumatically stabilize the ribs in these patients, reduce their pain by using positive pressure ventilation, and perhaps prevent them from ever requiring ventilation at all. Hmm. I will say that the studies demonstrate that although this is been regarded as a best practice for rib fractures. It still seems to be relatively infrequently used at most trauma centers. There was a large survey study of many trauma centers from the years 2007 to 2014, and they found that this was used in about 1% of their patients across that study. So something which um, I think that if it's chosen to be performed is going to be potentially useful according to studies that we have that would suggest that benefit, but something that is uh, not clearly penetrating its way into the wider trauma sphere yet. So a patient who might be a candidate for non-invasive ventilation would be someone with hypoxia and underlying pulmonary contusions, but is still awake and able to tolerate the mask uh, and otherwise not critically ill. Perhaps it could help with the pain of rib fractures while assisting their ventilation. That's the ideal patient in this scenario? That's right. Yeah. And within that patient population group, which I realize represents a minority of trauma patients, perhaps, there is a role for this non-invasive strategy with that group. Okay. So let's talk about operative fixation. That seems to be something that is gaining ground here recently, both in the literature and in trauma centers. Is there a role for it? And is there new evidence for use of internal fixators and plating and screw type fixation for rib fractures? So, yeah, I, I think that this was one of the big things that I wanted to highlight in the study was that 
the more recent RCTs that are now coming out and even the guideline statements which they've had time to make their way into have recommended operative fixation. Still, the best data for this comes within a population of flail chest patients uh, who either are at risk for or else who have already developed hypoxic respiratory failure. The you know evidence is still coming out for those patient groups in whom you don't have flail chest. And so either patients with more isolated rib fractures or patients with rib fractures that just don't constitute a flail segment. But, you know, the data really does seem to suggest that particularly in a group in whom you can undergo plating relatively quickly, so within about 72 hours after a traumatic injury, uh, substantial benefits that can be given to those patients after rib fracture. That's good to hear that there is something operative that can be done to decrease the healing time for someone with flail segments. That's multiple ribs fractured in two or more places, causing this paradoxical movement of their chest wall when they take deep breaths in and out. The operative fixation involves plating multiple ribs, and then that's meant to reduce healing time, but also improve the mechanics of the chest wall, right? So that makes it not only less painful, but also gives them less complications in the way of pneumonia and perhaps assist in the healing of their pulmonary contusion. Yeah, that's completely correct. Yeah. So the flail segments are a particularly risky pattern of rib fracture in which you've got multiple segments that are injured and can create the phenomenon of a paradoxical movement, which can worsen a patient's respiratory function, lead to a longer time on the ventilator. The ventilator leads to a longer time morbidity and risks of infection, which they get within the ICU requirements for sedation, et cetera something that often leads off to a tracheostomy within those patient groups. And it seems like now, even with the economic studies, so we, you know, try and get a risk benefit for doing these rib plating study uh, procedures, reduce morbidity, reduce mortality, reduce time on the ventilator, reduced amounts of pain, improvements of respiratory function and uh, elimination of that flail segment uh, paradoxical motion. So I would say substantial benefits that are given to those groups. Wonderful. That's actually really good to hear uh, that's becoming an option for the treatment yeah. of this patient population. Still, some of the questions that arise from those studies would lead to the you know, question of whether you'd need to have a patient transferred from one center to another center if there's going to be operative options for fixation, which are at a major trauma center, for instance, but a patient who has presented to a hospital which is not skilled in these rib plating techniques. And it still is an open question as whether that's going to be beneficial to transfer in those cases. I think that there's data which is going to be coming out for those hopefully in the future. But as of now, I know that most trauma centers are starting to experiment with more rib plating and there's data suggesting that the uh, evidence uh, or the incidence of rib plating is going to go up in the future. It's already started to but still something which is not universally available. And so there's going to be a little bit of discrepancy according to what part of the country you are and what your local trauma practice is as to whether that's really going to be an option. One more reason to transfer the trauma patient. <laughs> now, when we talk about special populations or people who are particularly at risk, you touched on already the elderly and their increased morbidity and mortality from these injuries. There are a couple of others you mentioned in the issue cancer patients and children? Anything specific about those populations? Right. So the elderly population is the one that I'd say benefits uh, the most from a more invasive strategy of 
trying to figure out the number of root fractures they have and determining their exact pattern of injury. It, it's long been recognized that within an elderly population group, even any more than two rib fractures ha carries a substantial risk of mortality. So it, many guidelines would suggest that these patients not only be, need to be admitted to an inpatient service, but really that any elderly patient, any patient over 65 with over two rib fractures would benefit from an ICU admission, even in the exclusion of other injuries, just so that they get the best nursing care, so that they get a chance to learn how to use an encephalometer, so that they get good monitoring of the respiratory status, because there's such a high risk for respiratory dysfunction, for pneumonia, for infection, and then for death. The other groups that we kind of talked about in this article, so malignancy in a patient with cancer, it can cause rib fractures with relatively minor trauma. This is something which can be prefaced by a amount of pain around that area, which is going to eventually lead to a rib fracture. As for the pediatric uh, patient group with rib fractures, I, I would say that it's worth noting that rib fractures are relatively rare in children overall. Their bony system is still more cartilaginous and is developing and harder to break. The the occurrence of a rib fracture within a pediatric population group is still something which in most centers is going to raise concern for abuse and raise the question of whether a more comprehensive workup for signs of child abuse and other kinds of rib fractures and other fractures that can occur in those patients should be performed. And there's um, dealing, I guess, more with our imaging guidelines, concepting back a bit, an entire separate set of American College of Radiology guidelines, which has been published specifically to deal with these cases of suspected child abuse, non-accidental trauma, and uh, to guide recommendations of imaging in those cases. Yeah, that's a very important point to make. Thank you for mentioning that. And then the last step in treatment is going to be disposition. So trying to figure out who can go home and who needs to be admitted to the hospital. Are there any tools we have at our disposal that might assist in that decision making? Yeah, so there are certainly tools that you can use here. There's probably no single tool which has been widely rolled out and externally validated for the disposition of patients after a rib fracture. I've already mentioned that within an elderly population group, it's recognized that any rib fracture amount over two is highly associated with morbidity, mortality, and that those patients certainly need to be admitted. For a younger population group, and for those groups with isolated injuries, with no other rib fractures, there's a couple of different things that can be done. The battle score has been published, which evaluates the patient's age, number of rib fractures, some other historical factors, and tries to determine a probability of mortality based upon those criteria. And that has been suggested that in a, in a risk score of zero to 10, which is the lowest risk score category of the battle score, that patient may be a good candidate for outpatient management. There is also a uh, published a flow chart for disposition, which at least was internally validated at one center, which used a combination of root fracture pattern as well as FVC, force vital capacity measured in the emergency department to determine if patients were good candidates for outpatient management or not. I, I would say that this would need to be externally validated before widespread use, but certainly something which holds a lot of promise to decrease the amounts of admissions for isolated root fractures. Good. And there's a pathway in the issue that appears on page 19 that is also exceptionally helpful. We did talk about the elderly population and having more than two rib fractures. That's based upon, I think it's the Western Trauma Society guidelines, which would recommend ICU admission. But there's also a, a reference that I've included within my article by Witt who is actually somebody who I trained with back over in Seattle. She published, I thought, a, a fantastic review of what the policies were in place at our trauma center that we were locally at. And 
something that I, I really thought had spent a lot of time doing uh, a good work through the literature and coming up with a great trauma pathway that we used back there and highly suggestive of this pathway being valid for the group with over two rib fractures and over the age of 65 benefiting from the ICU, even in, in relatively speaking, more modestly injured patients. Like I said, just to really ensure that they had their good training, the good early monitoring of the respiratory status and the good pain control from the outset to prevent the downstream mortality. So not necessarily suggesting that these patients could require a long ICU stay, but some patients who would still benefit from that ICU level of monitoring in a lot of centers. Good. That's very helpful. Well, we are at the end. Is there anything else you want to mention? I, I just think that this is something which has been a phenomenon which has occurred in trauma for so long. The uh, findings of the isolated rib fractures and also the findings of rib fractures as part of a, a larger syndrome of trauma. I really want to be thankful to all the researchers that are doing great work in this area. To all the people that are writing guidelines that are coming out with now these sort of not necessarily rewriting the wheel or re, uh, remaking the wheel, but a lot of these new studies that are that are honing down our treatments and coming up with some things which are old, which might be new again, things like the chest binders, things like these orthotics, things like this kinesio taping, but also a lot of things that were using information that we learned from orthopedics and from other worlds of medicine now treating chest trauma, these uh, replating devices that are being rolled out in a bigger fashion. So something that I, I really do think is starting to show a lot of uh, new data recently. And so something that'll also hopefully within the next several years have even more impressive studies for good treatments and good outcomes in these patients. Good. Well, thank you very much for those final thoughts. And thank you also for joining us on the podcast today and walking us through your issue. If you are interested in reading it and claiming the CME and you're not already a subscriber, that's ebmedicine.net titled Emergency Department Management of Rib Fractures. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much to Dr. Patrick Marr for taking the time to speak with us today on the podcast and to author this month's issue of Emergency Medicine Practice on Rib Fractures and Their Management in the Emergency Department. I highly encourage you to go and check out the full issue, see all the figures and the clinical pathway that are published inside it at ebmedicine.net. And don't forget while you're there to take advantage of the 20% discount code in honor of ASEP's Scientific Assembly this year. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Eshoo. Be safe.